It's that time of year again, mere mortals. February, the month of love, romance, candy hearts, and going into some light credit card debt to prove your affection for someone has returned. Valentine's Day is coming up, and with that in mind, I want to explore the messed up origins of one of the most famous love stories ever told, Beauty and the Beast. That little teapot wasn't lying when she called it a tale as old as time. While the Disney movie may be the most famous example of this archetype in action, it was nowhere near the first. Humans have been telling stories about beautiful women and their beastly lovers for literally thousands of years, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And I've gotta tell ya, some of them are straight up disturbing. The stories I'm gonna share with you today will not only change the way you watch the Disney film forever, you'll gain a newfound appreciation for it, and the insane stories that inspired it. Before we dive in though, I wanna share some really exciting news. We just dropped another new design over at MereMortals.store the beautiful shirt you see before you. You may have heard that Disney's first animated short, Steamboat Willie, recently entered the public domain. Well, since we've spent the past six years discussing how Disney takes these beloved and messed up fairy tales and cleans them up for modern audiences, I wanted to do the exact opposite with their most iconic character. So I reached out to my boy Kinjiro and we collaborated on this truly disgusting Steamboat Willie design as well as this putrid looking emblem, then slapped him on the comfiest t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies we could find. If you want to snag one for your next trip to Disney World or even the next Messed Up Origins episode drop, I put a link to MereMortals.store in the description. And right now you can get 10% off the entire drop with promo code PUBLICDOMAIN. But now, without further ado, I present the messed up origins of Beauty and the Beast. So I'm going to address the big beast in the room. I have covered this story's origins before. It was our sixth episode of this series back in December of 2017. And while I think it turned out pretty good, considering I didn't know almost anything about folklore or mythology at that point, it could have been so much better, and today I intend to make up for that wasted potential. Because the roots of this story are far deeper than I realized. I'm not a fool. Disney's animated classic is a mix of two well-known fairy tales that share the same name. The first was a full 144-page novel by French author Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villanueva in 1740, and the second was a shortened version of that novel written by Marie La Prince de Beaumont in 1756. And listen, regarding their names, I think we can all agree these are some French-ass names, which means I have two options. Try and fail to say them in French, or say them correctly in American English. I know I'm going to get comments complaining about this, but I'm going the American English route, because that's the language I speak. When I first covered this story, I had only read Beaumont's version because I'd heard that Villanueva's story was extremely wordy and overly descriptive, as where Beaumont's was a fraction of the length and managed to tell effectively the exact same story. But this time I read Villanueva's original variant cover to cover, and holy crap does it add an insane amount of backstory. No exaggeration, the moment where the movie's credits roll and Beauty and the Beast live happily ever after is only 58% of the original. There's an entire third act that both Disney and Beaumont left out. There's no denying that third act is completely unnecessary, but the context that it adds to the story makes it a lot more interesting. And a little incesty. 
what? I told you the story was inspired by a Greek myth, didn't I? You remember when Disney made the live-action adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, but they were too scared to do anything unique or interesting with it, so they just added some backstory about Belle's mom being sick and dying? Yeah, well, not the flex, but Villanueva's story invents an entire geopolitical conflict, a fairy kingdom, and a governing body of that fairy kingdom. We'll get to that soon enough, but first, let's start at the beginning of Villanueva's story. And as we go on, I'll explain all the connections to the Disney movie, as well as the ideas they took from other Beauty and the Beast stories found around Europe. Now, unlike the film, which explains right away the nature of the Beast's curse, why it happened, and how exactly he can be cured from it, Villanueva's story doesn't spoil any of that for us. Instead, it introduces us to Beauty's father, a wealthy French merchant who was widowed with 12 children six boys and six girls. Every one of them is attractive, but the youngest daughter, called Beauty, is the epitome of perfection. She's also the only one of her sisters who isn't a materialistic socialite. Just like the movie, she's kind of a book nerd, and similar to Belle, whose name is French for Beauty, the community sees her as a bit of an oddball. Do you think I'm odd? My daughter? Odd? <laughs> Where would you get an idea like that? But that doesn't stop the local bachelors from proposing to her on a daily basis, something her sisters are infinitely jealous of. Belle doesn't have sisters, obviously, but that's probably the only way she's different from Villanueva's beauty. At this point in their lives, Beauty's family had spent their entire existence at the height of luxury but they're soon struck by terrible misfortune when their home burns to the ground and their father's shipping vessels are all hijacked by pirates or lost at sea. Left with nothing but a small mansion in the countryside, the family moves away from the big city and soon has to adapt to their new environment where they work for a living and can't be waited on hand and foot. This wasn't a problem for Beauty, who chose to make the best out of a bad situation and embrace the new lifestyle for her family's sake, but her sisters refuse to change and repeatedly berate her for not feeling the same way. These silly bitches actually think Beauty is stupid for not realizing what they've lost and don't understand that she's just embracing the suck. Now in the movie, Belle's father Maurice is an inventor and he heads out on a little trip to enter his contraption into a contest. But in the story, the father's out-of-town excursion is triggered when he gets news that his last surviving ship just made it to port two years after it was thought to be lost. And since he's about to make a ton of money from it, he asks his daughters if they want anything from his trip. Of course, the five older sisters ask for clothing, jewels, and the finest dresses, but Beauty only requests that her father returns home safe. Still, he wants to get her something, so she humbly requests that he bring her a rose. Sadly, though, he isn't able to buy his daughters anything, because when he gets to the city, he learns his shipment was repossessed to pay back his debts and ends up leaving the city as poor as he was before. On the way home, he gets lost during a vicious snowstorm and is lucky enough to find a massive palace for him and his horse to take shelter in. Once inside, he calls out to speak with the owner, but curiously, despite the fire being lit and dinner sitting on the table, no one's there. And after waiting by the fire for a few hours, he finally succumbs to his hunger and helps himself to the food. He spends the night at the castle and wakes up to find his dirty clothes have mysteriously been replaced with brand new fresh fly threads. Then he gets his horse from the stable and heads out to leave. But on his way out, he passes through a garden and notices a bush growing the most beautiful roses he'd ever seen. Remembering Belle's request, he picks a few of them to make a bouquet, a decision he would immediately regret. The moment the merchant plucks that first rose, he's tackled to the ground by a monster who calls himself the Beast 
And it's here that we get our only physical description of him, which says he has an elephant's trunk. I'm kind of glad Disney chose to leave out that detail. The merchant is quick to apologize and explains that after all the hospitality he received, he had no idea that plucking some roses for his daughter would be against the rules, but the beast scolds him for not appreciating his generosity and sentences him to death. He does provide a way out though, and he tells the merchant that if he convinces one of his daughters to come to the palace in his place, after making it clear to her that she's going to be food for a monstrous beast, then he can leave. While the merchant doesn't want to do that, he does take the beast up on the offer so he can at least say goodbye to his children before returning to receive his punishment. And in case you're wondering why the beast would let Beauty's dad go at all, he makes a point to say that if he doesn't return, he'll hunt him down and kill his entire family and the merchant fully believes him. But don't get it twisted, the beast isn't a total savage. He may have placed a ton of value on those roses, but material possessions didn't mean much to him, so he sent the merchant home with several chests full of riches to give his daughters. Now you'll remember that in the movie, this goes down a bit differently. After Maurice loses his horse and escapes a pack of wolves, which are also mentioned as a threat when Beauty's dad is lost in the book, he's welcomed into the castle by these servants, but not the beast himself. And when the beast finds him trespassing, he takes Maurice prisoner in the tower. So Maurice doesn't actually take a rose like in the book, but Disney did find a way to incorporate it into the story anyway with the prince's curse. But we'll talk more about that at the end. When the merchant returns home, he delivers the bad news to his daughters, and to no one's surprise, the five older ones are quick to blame Beauty for her ridiculous rose request, but to their surprise, she immediately volunteers to go in her father's place. Her brothers also step up to slay the beast themselves, because unlike the sisters, they really love Beauty, but her father is quick to shut them down because that would just lead to their needless deaths. Beauty is ultimately able to convince her father that she's going in his place, saying that even if he forbids it, she's still going to escort him to the palace and volunteer herself to the beast the moment they meet, so he has no choice but to accept it. This is not unlike the Disney movie where Belle is brought to the palace by her father's horse, discovers he's a prisoner there, and volunteers his tribute despite all his protesting. A major difference with the movie though is that the book's beauty is welcomed to the palace with great ceremony and fanfare. The beast provided them with magic horses to bring them back, and when they're in view of the palace, they see an elaborate firework display that actually spells out Beauty's name. Something that would have required magic back when this was written in the 1700s, but nowadays is kind of possible thanks to the power of computers. Magic is just science that we don't understand, man. Before we dive into Act 2 and talk about Beauty's imprisonment though, I want to say thanks to our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace has all the tools to give creators of all kinds the ability to design beautiful websites easily, affordably, and regardless of experience level. To start, you get to choose from a huge selection of award-winning templates, and from there, you can customize them how you see fit with their intuitive drag-and-drop interface. Whether your goal is to market your business, show off your art portfolio, or treat your followers to exclusive content, you can make it happen with Squarespace. They also give you access to marketing tools and analytics so you can make sure your website is running efficiently, and on the rare occasion it's not, they offer personalized customer support 24-7. Just go to squarespace.com slash johnsolo to start a completely free trial. And when your site is ready for launch, use code johnsolo to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Act 2 is where the comparisons with the movie really start to pile up. 
and there's a ton of details they followed exactly, and some they went with the exact opposite. For starters, in the movie, the Beast is constantly yelling, ordering Belle and his servants around however he wants. But in the book, Beauty comments that the Beast is actually not mean at all. He's just kind of dumb and not that interesting to talk to. Both versions of Beauty do receive their own apartment, though, and are given free reign to explore anywhere in the castle. The movie's Beauty is forbidden from the West Wing, where the Enchanted Rose sits. What's in the West Wing? It's forbidden! But in the book, she can go anywhere she pleases because there is no Enchanted Rose to keep safe. Just like in the movie, the castle satisfies every one of Beauty's needs. There's a giant library with more books than she could read in a lifetime, her meals are served to her by invisible servants, and she's even treated to some dinnertime entertainment by the birds and monkeys that live in the castle. That's right, birds and monkeys. Instead of talking candlesticks and clocks, this beauty has birds and monkeys, and she can even speak with them thanks to a parrot who translates the monkey's sign language. Another really interesting difference is the magic mirror. This mirror will show you anything anything you wish to see. You might recall that in the movie, Beauty's able to use the mirror to check in on her father back home, but they actually took that detail from Beaumont's adaptation. In Villanueva's version, there is no magic mirror per se, but she does have magic windows that you can basically think of as TVs. When she opens up the window shutter, she has a balcony view of the greatest stages around the world, allowing her to watch musical performances, operas, even Italian puppet shows. This kind of relates to the mirror because she's able to see the audiences attending these shows and recognizes them as friends from her old social circle when she lived in the city, but it's unlike the mirror because it can't show her whatever she wants. So stupid. Beauty is able to spend her days in leisure, wanting for nothing and being endlessly entertained, and each one of her days would end with dinner and a quick check-in by the Beast, who wants to make sure that she's comfortable and satisfied. Soon, Beauty starts to wonder if the Beast isn't evil after all, because so far he's been a perfect gentleman. A bit on the dumb side, sure, but a gentleman nonetheless. You'll remember that in the movie, it takes a lot of convincing from the Beast to get Belle to agree to even one dinner date. But in the book, Beauty is intent on making sure the Beast is happy because she's terrified of pissing him off. I find it interesting that while the movie's Beast is undeniably more aggressive and threatening than the stories, Belle stands her ground against him from the beginning, while Beauty is totally submissive, despite Beast telling her that she's in control here and that if she ever wants him to leave her alone to just ask. Part of Beauty's tension comes from the end of her nighttime routine, though. For every single time the Beast checks in on her, he concludes their conversation with the same question, will you marry me? And every single time, Beauty has to reject him. Whoa, slow down, Maurice. She wonders how long she can keep rejecting him before he loses his patience and devours her, but nonetheless, she stands firm on her answers and the Beast continues to accept it. Another detail unique to the story is that almost every night, Beauty is met by a dream visitor in the form of a handsome prince who claims to be the Beast's prisoner. And throughout the story, she falls deeper and deeper in love with him while developing a different platonic kind of love for the Beast. She also searches the castle top to bottom for the imprisoned prince, but has no luck. The prince isn't her only visitor though. Beauty is also visited by a beautiful woman every so often who continuously advises her that she shouldn't judge by appearances and that the only way to free her beloved prince is to give the Beast a real shot at her heart. 
leaving Beauty conflicted about her relationships with both of her loves. Now in the movie, she continues to bond with the Beast, and just when things are going really well in the relationship, she looks in her mirror and sees that her father has gotten sick and needs her help. So she requests permission from the Beast to visit him, and he lets her go free. Something similar happens in Villanueva's book as well, but it's not triggered by Beauty looking in the mirror. Instead, she simply misses her family, and Beast allows her to leave for a few months, kind of like Hades does with Persephone. Now, when Beauty returns home, you would think that her sisters would be delighted to see that she hasn't been torn to pieces by a monster, but they weren't. Her brothers and father were ecstatic, even crying tears of joy, but her sisters quietly resented her because she was now more beautiful than ever, and even their fiancés were requesting her hand in marriage. If she survives this, they're gonna have some awkward family holidays. Beauty attends many of her sister's weddings while she's in town, but by the end of her allotted two months, she's actually eager to return to the Beast. Even still, she loves her family, and they mostly love her and her brothers convince her to stay just a little while longer so they can soak up every second with her possible. I thought that was a really interesting twist, because in Beaumont's adaptation, it's Beauty's two sisters that convince her to stay longer, but it's not out of love. They're just secretly hoping the Beast will get mad at her and kill her when she goes back. Yeah, I don't use the C word often, but I'm going to here. These are some catty bitches. Well, that night, Beauty has a dream that the Beast is dying in some kind of cave, cursing her name for abandoning him, and the thought of her losing the Beast forever makes her realize that her love for him is more romantic than she previously thought. She uses a magic ring to quickly return to the castle, and after a lot of searching, finds Beast dead on the cave floor. That didn't go very well at all, did it? Except that he wasn't dead. The book fakes you out and says he is, but she wakes him up by dumping a bucket of water on his head. Then she professes her love. Disney decided to up the drama in their version of this scene. The Beast's castle is stormed by villagers from Belle's hometown, and the furniture has to fend them off. The one real threat, Gaston, makes it through though, and ends up stabbing the Beast before falling to his own death like an idiot. Disney really loves dramatic falls to the death don't they? Weirdly though, the book's beast doesn't immediately transform back into a prince after Belle saves him like he does in the movie. Instead, he tells Beauty he loves her too, and then she helps him get into bed and sleep. It's not until dinner the following evening that their happily ever after begins to take shape. After they eat, he asks her the same question as always, will you be my wife? And this time, she says yes. That night, they fall asleep in the same room, her in the bed and him on the couch. And when she wakes up the next morning, the beast is nowhere to be found. Sleeping in his place on the couch was the handsome prince of her dreams, and she realizes they were one and the same all along. Act 3 is where the original story distinguishes itself from every other version, because we're told the entire backstory behind how the Beast was cursed and why Beauty is not a lowly merchant's daughter after all. Unlike the movie, this story doesn't unfold in a quick two-minute breakdown either. It's a 69-page story. Nice. That's 42% of the book. With that in mind, I'm going to do my best to keep this as simple as possible because I do have some other stories I want to mention before we run out of time. So firstly, on the morning of Beast's transformation back to a prince, Beauty is visited by two women. First is the lady from her dreams, who reveals herself to be a fairy, and the second is the prince's mother, 
who throws herself at the feet of Beauty in gratitude for saving her son. Things take a weird turn when the Queen finds out that Beauty isn't of royal blood, though. She says that while she's grateful for the help, her son can't marry someone with such a pathetically low social status. The good fairy actually gets kind of pissed about this and shames the Queen for being so cruel. But then she drops another bomb. Beauty is actually of royal blood because she's the prince's cousin. And somehow that's a good thing. Might I add that she's not even a distant cousin either. Beauty's father is the brother of the prince's mother. So they're first cousins. But let's talk about the curse for a minute. In the movie, the prince is transformed after he rejects the gift of a rose from an old beggar woman, and after she tells him that appearances can be deceiving, she reveals her beautiful form as a young enchantress and curses him to remain a beast until he can learn how to love and be loved back. And the rose becomes his timer, as on his 21st birthday, the last petal will fall and he'll remain a beast forever. This is almost nothing like Villanueva's version, but it strongly resembles a variant of the folktale from southern France collected by Henry Pua, where basically the exact same thing happens. Villanueva makes it so much more complicated, though. I'm gonna make this as simple as possible. The prince's father died before he was born, and his mother left him in the care of his fairy godmother while she went off to fight a war. That war took about 15 years longer than expected, so the prince was basically raised to young adulthood by his godmother and grew to love her like a grandma. When the war finally ended and the queen returned home, the godmother made a bizarre request though. She wanted to marry the prince, which both he and the queen found disgusting for multiple reasons. For one, the fairy, who I'm gonna call the evil fairy, was like a grandmother to him, as I previously said. Secondly, they had an age difference that was impossible to ignore. She was well over a thousand years old, and he was still a teenager. The third reason, though, is downright hilarious. When the evil fairy becomes furious that some lowly mortals would reject a powerful supernatural being such as herself, she demands demands an explanation, and the queen literally responds, if you want to know so bad, just look in the mirror. Ugh, you're mean. Villanueva makes it very clear that the evil fairy is but ugly and always has been. She even goes so far as to clarify that it's not just an issue of her extremely old age and that the fairy wasn't even hot when she was younger. Naturally hideous is the phrase she uses to describe her. The fairy then concludes that the prince's good looks are to blame, not her being a geriatric uggo, and curses him to transform into a hideous monster who is as dumb as he is ugly. But since all curses need a way to be broken, she adds the caveat that he can only be saved by a beautiful maiden's act of true love. She also adds a bunch of qualifiers, like the maiden has to willingly get to know and love him, and that if anyone finds out his true identity as a prince, he'll be trapped as a beast forever. This way, he can't find help or be cured by another fairy. After the evil fairy left, both the prince and the queen were moments away from taking their own lives. But lucky for them, the good fairy had been watching over them and showed up to help in the nick of time. Well, the nick of time would have actually been before the prince was cursed, but the evil fairy was a lot more powerful than the good fairy. So she had to wait until the damage was done before she could intervene and try to find a solution. She first transformed all of his servants into stone statues so they wouldn't be able to tell anyone about his condition. So drawing kind of a parallel to the servants being cursed in the movie. And then she summoned several more servants in the form of genies to keep him entertained and take care of him while he waited for his true love to arrive. 
Things only get more complicated from here, though, because Beauty's origin story is somehow more elaborate than the prince's. Remember how I said she's actually a princess? Well, her birth father was the king of a place called Fortunate Island, and her mother was a fairy, actually the sister of the good fairy who was helping the prince. But the thing is, not even the king knew about the secret fairy identity of his wife. And after Beauty was born, the evil fairy ratted on her for starting a family with mortals, something that was forbidden in the fairy kingdom until they reached a certain age. As a result, Mama Fairy was thrown in fairy jail, and just to put salt in her wounds, one particularly bitchy fairy, who has no role in the story besides this, threw a curse on Beauty, dooming her to marry a horrible beast. Meanwhile, the king never saw his wife again, because when he got home from his hunting trip, the servants reported that she passed away from a mysterious illness while he was gone. In other words, they lied because they were too scared to say, sorry, your majesty, your wife wandered off and we kinda sorta lost her. And you wanna hear something really messed up? After the evil fairy got Beauty's mother locked up, she tried to swoop in and take the king for herself. I know, she was thirsty for that royal lovin'. This was before she tried to marry the prince though. He was actually her backup for the king. In order to get on the king's good side, she watched over his infant daughter, and similar to how the prince's mother did, he named her the primary protector and caregiver and trusted her with his daughter's life. Which if you've been paying attention, you'll know was a bad idea. Because whenever the evil fairy made a pass at the king, he rejected her outright. And after this happened a few too many times, the evil fairy concluded that he must be clinging to his old life, and the only way to get him over it would be to destroy it. She hatched a scheme to hire some random couple from their kingdom to take the baby out in the woods and smother her. And that they did. Or at least they tried to. Once again, the good fairy showed up to save the day, this time in the form of a bear. She tore the would-be baby killers limb from limb, soaked the baby beauty's clothes in their blood so it would look like she was killed as well, then she resolved to find a safe place to raise her where the evil fairy would never find her. As luck would have it, she stumbled upon a cabin in the forest with three nurses taking care of a sick baby. She learned this baby was a daughter of a wealthy merchant and she had been on death's door since she was born. When that poor baby tragically passed away, the good fairy saw an opportunity. While the nurses were sleeping, she took her out of the crib and replaced her with baby Beauty. Then she buried her tiny little corpse and left Beauty to be raised by the merchant that appeared to have the means to support her. When the nurses woke up, they thought the merchant's daughter had a miraculous recovery and were delighted to bring her home. Meanwhile, the good fairy continued to check in on her niece to make sure that she was well taken care of. Now, as I said previously, this whole subplot actually went down before the prince was cursed. So when that happened, as horrible as it was, the good fairy knew that a solution was on the horizon. The only way to save the prince was for a beautiful maiden to fall in love with him. And it just so happened her niece was a beautiful maiden cursed to fall in love with a beast. Ipso facto, as long as the good fairy could gently nudge beauty in the right direction, both of them would be saved from their horrible fates. And as you've just heard, that's exactly what happened. Thanks to Beauty, the prince was restored to his human form, and thanks to the prince, the beast that Beauty fell in love with wouldn't stay a beast for long. I should also mention that when the beast confronted the merchant over the roses, he was putting on a performance. He didn't give a shit 
about those roses, but the good fairy told him about Beauty's request for one so he knew that he could exploit this to get her to his palace. Even better, word quickly passed to Beauty's birth father that his daughter, whom he had spent decades thinking was eaten by a bear, was actually alive, and it just so happened that her mother was released from her fairy prison that very same day after doing a favor for one of the fairy elders. Two broken families had been made whole again, and while the merchant was super bummed that Beauty wasn't his biological daughter, not to mention that his own daughter really did die all those years ago, his pain was lessened by the fact that Beauty would continue calling him father, and that she gave him and all of her siblings positions in her royal court. Hooray for nepotism! Oh, but we can't forget about the villains. So you might remember from my original Beauty and the Beast video from years ago that in Beaumont's version, Beauty's sisters would get punished by her fairy godmother. They were cursed to become statues that would forever stand guard over the castle until they could learn to be happy for their sister. Unfortunately, they get a free pass in this version, but in their defense, they didn't try to get Beauty killed like in Beaumont's story. Instead, it's the evil fairy who's punished. She's thrown in the same fairy jail that Beauty's mother spent all those years in, but her sentence was indefinite and hopefully lasted for eternity. Besides that, everyone involved in the tale lives happily ever after. Now that may be the end of this story, and it's about damn time, but the origins of this one aren't over. I want to tell you about an ancient Greek myth written 1600 years earlier that contains a shocking number of similarities. So for those who are new to the worlds of folklore and mythology, you should know that folklore experts use a special tool to organize stories by the archetypes and motifs they have in common. It's called the Arne Thompson Uther Tale Type Index, and there are over a thousand categories and subcategories in total. Appropriately, Villanueva's story, as well as Beaumont's and Disney's, falls under Tale Type 425C, Beauty and the Beast, but they aren't the only ones. Similar tales have been found in England, Germany, Denmark, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, Russia, China, and even America. And while I'd love to cover every single one of those, I'm going to leapfrog to the oldest one in existence, the ancient myth of Cupid and Psyche. Now, to be fair, I don't know if this story would technically be considered 425C because Cupid is a handsome hunk of a god, but the story shares some oddly specific similarities, to the point where I've got to imagine Villanueva used it as inspiration. Just to give you some context, the story, written in 2nd century Rome by Lucius Apuleius, follows a mortal woman named Psyche who is so beautiful that mankind starts worshipping her as the second coming of Aphrodite and their praise of her gets so intense, they actually start neglecting their temples to Aphrodite and cease to make sacrifices to her entirely. Naturally, Aphrodite doesn't like this, so she orders her son Cupid to shoot Psyche with an arrow that will cause her to fall in love with the ugliest, meanest, poorest, most vile man on the planet. In other words, a beast. This all backfires though when Cupid accidentally nicks himself with the arrow and immediately falls madly in love with Psyche. What happens next mirrors the fate of beauty almost exactly. Psyche is whisked away to a magnificent palace full of invisible servants and all the treasures she could possibly want, and every night, Cupid visits her. Only, she doesn't actually get to see what he looks like. Their meetings always take place in the bedroom, which is in complete darkness, 
they make love, and in the morning, Cupid leaves. He also makes a point during every visit to say that she can never see his face and to ignore any temptation to sneak a peek. Which reminds me of how the Beast had to conceal his royal identity from Beauty and how the Good Fairy often reminded her that appearances can be deceiving. Only in this case, I'm almost certain it's because Cupid is trying to hide his relationship from his mother and the other gods who know that Psyche is on Aphrodite's shite list. I mean, smite list. Now, Psyche is pretty certain that her mysterious man is a god and spectacularly good-looking, judging by the soft touch of his skin and cinnamon-scented hair. Seriously, those are details that can actually be found in the text, but on the occasions that her jealous sisters visit, they plant seeds of doubt in her mind. Knowing full well that she hasn't seen her lover yet, they capitalize on that insecurity and warn her that he's actually a venomous dragon and that if she doesn't kill him soon, he'll surely devour her. They tell her that during his next nighttime visit, she needs to slit his throat with a razor, then seek shelter at home. Of course, they're only saying this in the hope that it backfires, but she believes them nonetheless and follows their advice. Now, her sisters were right to expect this plan to go wrong, but it didn't happen the way they predicted. Psyche had used a lantern to get a good look at her lover and aim the razor true, and for the first time ever, she saw his face, which just so happened to be smoking hot. While she stood there, razor in one hand, lantern in the other, not knowing how to proceed, some hot oil spilled onto Cupid and woke him up with a start. As you can imagine, he was horrified and furious to see Psyche not only betraying his trust, but in the process of trying to kill him. So he abandoned her then and there, vowing to never see her again. At this point, the story departs significantly from the Beauty and the Beast tale we just talked about and actually resembles folk tales about Baba Yaga and other witches, with Aphrodite fulfilling the role of the witches. In order to gain forgiveness, Psyche is forced to do some humiliating and borderline impossible tasks that nearly kill her. But in the end, Cupid returns to save his true love and convinces Zeus to absolve her from Aphrodite's fury. Then the two get married and live happily ever after. If you want to hear that story in its entirety, because I left out a lot of juicy details, you can check out my episode called The Messed Up Origins of Cupid. As for this episode, I think that'll do it for The Messed Up Origins of Beauty and the Beast. I know, I've got to stop adding filler to get to that 10 minute mark. But I do hope you enjoyed today's stories and learned something in the process. Or at the very least, I hope I saved you some time on that book report you had to write. If you did find this entertaining and informative, do me a solid by sacrificing those five star and follow buttons to the gods so they don't curse me to transform into a hideous beast. Again. And also, if you want more content exploring the messed up origins of your favorite myths and fairy tales. I post new deep dives like this one every Friday and short form content every other day of the week on YouTube and social media. I'll speak with you all again next Friday when I dive into the messed up origins of several Disney movies. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first.